Okay, guys, if you uh, have your Bible with you, open and find the Old Testament book of Joshua. This morning we are coming to the end of the opening section of the book. I've told you several times already that um, chapters 1 through 5 chronicle the, 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 the Israel's preparation to enter into the promised land before chapter 6 commences the actual conquest to be taking that land. And so with chapter 5 before us today, we, we're coming to the conclusion of their preparation to enter the land. I mean, the, technically they're, they're, they're in it, but they're, it's not yet theirs. <laughs> so this is an important and eventful chapter in Joshua, and it includes, at the end of it, one of the more interesting encounters in Joshua, and really, to me, in the whole Old Testament. Uh, you know, the, here we are, the people have now crossed the river. In a remarkable way, they've been instructed by the Lord to, uh, to place stones where they first camp across the river uh, in such a way that they remember forever the miraculous work that the Lord did to bring them across that river on dry land, just as he had done the generation before them across the Red Sea. Now they're technically in the land. They recommit themselves uh, as the people of God, to, to, and they do it through the covenant sign of circumcision. They observe the, in this chapter, they're going to do that. They're going to observe the first Passover in the land, the manna that God had provided for them for 40 years to feed them and, and sustain them uh, comes to an end in this chapter. And then at the end of the chapter, Joshua meets a mysterious man who uh, identifies himself as the commander of the army of the Lord. And uh, it's an interesting chapter for sure. It's an encouraging one as I read it. So before we go any further, we need to read it together. It's not a long chapter. Uh, but like I said, there are several things here to see. So if you have found Joshua chapter 5, I, I invite you to follow along, uh, beginning in verse 1 as I read aloud. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted. And there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeoth Ha'araloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the, whole, of, of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, who died in the wilderness on the way after they'd come out of Egypt. Um, and though all the people who came out uh, had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they'd come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places until the, until the camp, in the camp until they were healed. And they said to Joshua, the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, and so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month 
in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel. But they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. (laughs) But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Let's pray. Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And we, we uh, are eager to hear from you as you speak in and through its words. So, Lord, would you please, as we come to this word, would you give us eyes to see the truth in this passage? Would you give us minds to understand what you're telling us here and teaching us? Would you give us then hearts to embrace and love what we clearly see and understand this passage to say? Would you give us wills to obey whatever it is you call us to do in it? Give me the help that I need to teach, and please give us all ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this, this chapter isn't very, isn't very long, and it, and it pretty naturally, you may have noticed this, it pretty naturally divides itself up into sort of three different scenes. Um, one having to do with circumcision, another having to do with the Passover, and then a third having to do with this mysterious encounter at the end of the chapter. And so what I want us to think about this morning is going to sort of closely stick to this natural outline in the text itself. And so I want to think about three different things, and there's three different scenes. And as I thought about what, um, what these three scenes would have instilled in them, because I think that's what we're after, uh, the observance of all these, these three different scenes, what, would they, what, would, what meaning would it have had for the people? as they're about to enter the land. Because we need to, don't forget where we are in this book. They're not, it's not just a random chapter. They're, their feet are on the land, but they need to, they're about, Jericho is right in front of them. They're about to begin their conquest. So what would these things have instilled in them before they set out? And uh, it seems to me, and it's pretty simple, it seems to me that faith and trust in the Lord is, is, is what these things were instilled designed to instill in them uh, each of these things that they observed or, or that happened to them. Uh, yeah, precisely that, as they were about to enter upon this conquest of the land. Faith and trust, not in themselves, not in the, the might of their army, however they may have conceived of that. I mean, they might have not been, so that they wouldn't be too puffed up as to how mighty they, they thought they might have been or or worried about how weak they felt like they might have been, but trust in the Lord and his, uh, his, his, his promise to fight for them and to keep his promise. And so with that framework in mind, I want us to think about each of these three areas uh, of trust and these three d- divisions of the text 
about three different areas of trust that each of the, this scene, these scenes would have instilled in them. So if you're taking notes here, here is what I want us to see. The first scene in verses 1 through 9, what would that have instilled in them? I think it would instill in them this, trust that they are his people. Verses 1 to 9, trust that they are his people. That's what I would take away from this bit about circumcision. And then, secondly, we're going to just look at verse 10, just 10 alone for, for the second point, uh, when they observed the Passover, which would instill in them further trust in his promise. Verses 1 to 9, the trust that they are his people. Verse 10, trust in his promise. And then for the remainder of the chapter, verses 11 through 15, uh, through the bit about manna and this mysterious man that he met along the way, would have instilled in them trust in his provision. Each of these would have been immensely encouraging them as they began their conquest of the land. So that being laid out, let's dive in and take a closer look at the text. Beginning in, at the beginning, uh, where in verses 1 through 9, the Lord would have instilled in them trust that they are his people. So as we read, the dominant theme of these opening verses uh, has to do with the, uh, the circumcision of the people of the men who are about to go to, to war. Um, it begins in verse 1, which is actually a, a, quite a long verse, repeating again something like what we heard back in chapter 2 from Rahab about how the, the Amorites and the Canaanites and the people in the land feared the people of Israel. And you see that repeated there at the end of verse 1. They're talking about the people who were already in the land. Their hearts melted. And there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. We saw that almost verbatim back in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, uh, when Rahab described the mindset of the people in the land. I'm going to take that point and just to say something quite practical for you about... I, I try to bring these things up often when we're studying the Scriptures. I try to bring up and point out when you see a repeated word, when you see a repeated phrase or a repeated idea... Um, a repeated kind of thing happening, noting, noting repeating patterns. That's really important in study, studying your Bible because that's not just the human author uh, repeating that. Behind that human author writing these things stands the Holy Spirit of God inspiring them to be written. And so the Holy Spirit of God is repeating these things for our instruction. And so it is to our advantage that we notice repeated words repeated phrases, repeated ideas, repeated events. And how do we notice them? Sometimes it's really easy when they appear very close together. If they're in the same verse or in the same chapter uh, and you're just reading all, all at once, sometimes they're harder to spot. For example, this one. There's a repeated, almost verbatim phrase. We're in chapter 5, but it would require you remembering something all the way back in chapter 2 to see the repeated pattern. And it's going to come up again. Uh, just a little preview, it's going to come up again, I think, in chapter 7. How do you note those? Simple thing is, just when you're studying the scriptures, if you're studying small little bits at a time, a verse at a time, or just take, take time every now and then to just read the whole bit. Just read the whole of it. Like if you're studying through Ephesians, let's just say you're studying through Ephesians and, and you're, it's one of Paul's letters and it's hard to, you, you got to look at the granular level when you're studying Paul. His, he's pretty tight, Right? But if you're, studying, if you're studying Ephesians and you're going verse by verse, I would just suggest a plan like this. Monday through Friday, just maybe take a verse or a small chunk each morning 
uh, in Ephesians, but maybe every Saturday, just read the whole book. Just read the whole book of Ephesians, right? If you're, I, I know I picked up this repeated phrase in Joshua because one day in preparation to this, I just read Joshua at one sitting. And it's long, and 13 to 21 is pretty, pretty slow because that's how you divide up the land. But you just do it. I've told you before, read Leviticus in one sitting. It's great. I promise you, it's great. You see, you see amazing repeated patterns and repeated emphases. I just say all that to say, using this as an example, don't get lost in the, in the trees and miss sight of the forest. So uh, in your own Bible study, read the small stuff, but then every now and then step back and read the whole bit. All right? So uh, the people are, are afraid. They're, 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 there's no spirit in them. Their heart's melted. Right? But then you look at verse 1 again, and, uh, and, and, and in, look not just at the fear of the people who are already in the land, how that's described, but also notice how there's an, an emphasis on the people of Israel. In verse 1, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Repeated twice in one verse. So there's an emphasis on the people. And beginning in verse 2, the Lord wants to reassure them and reestablish them firmly as not just the people of Israel, but as his people. His covenant people. And he comes to Joshua and tells him to take flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel. Now, um, you know, circumcision is certainly a, uh, a, 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 an important uh, idea in the Old Testament. And I want to, we'll talk about that. But it's also funny to me that, it, that there is in that, it doesn't just say the Lord comes to Joshua and says, circumcise the sons of Israel. He says, take flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel. Um, flint knives, that was the tool that he was to use. Why, why is that significant? Maybe it, you could say, well, that's, that's probably what they used all the time, so maybe it's not significant. But if it's, the, if it's what they used all the time, why even bring it up? I think it's significant, and there isn't any way to prove this. I think it's, 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 uh, it's significant that uh, this is the same tool that was used in a famous episode in Exodus chapter 4 in the life of Moses. Uh, you might recall that in Exodus chapter 4, God confronted Moses because he had not circumcised his own son. Um, and it says that the Lord, it literally says in the text of Exodus 4, that the Lord sought to put him to death. Uh, crazy. I mean, you think about it. In, in Exodus 4, the Lord had spoken to Moses. Uh, he was sending Moses to Pharaoh uh, to, he was promising to bring his word to him and promising to do mighty uh, wonders through him, and through his staff. But in the very next scene in Exodus 4, the Lord is seeking to put him to death. Why? For reasons we're not told, Moses had not given his own son the covenant sign uh, of, of being among God's people, which was circumcision. And in that scene, we're specifically told that Moses' wife Zipporah took a flint, a knife of flint, and circumcised their son. And the Lord relented and worked marvels on behalf of his people in the Exodus. I find it curious that in Joshua 5, Joshua isn't just told to circumcise the men, but specifically what instrument to use. And it happens to be the same instrument used here that was used in Moses' life and throughout Joshua. I don't know if you've noticed this so far in the first five chapters of Joshua. 
Throughout Joshua, there have been so many comparisons between Joshua and Moses. Um, uh, even, down, even down to God's desire, specifically stated desire, God's desire to elevate Joshua in the eyes of the people in the, in the same esteem that they held Moses. Well, this is another episode in the life of Joshua that mirrors an episode from Moses' life, and the meaning of the two events mirror each other as well. God is committed to keep his covenant promises to his covenant people. And, 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 and both are instances where God's people had neglected the covenant sign of God's people, which assured them of his favor uh, and his covenant commitment to them. And that's the point here. Sure, the Lord had done great things for them already in Joshua, uh, things that he had instructed them to, to remember forever, but, but to know with confidence the assurance of his ongoing favor to them. It's right here that they bear the covenant sign of God's covenant people. God gave um, his people the, sign, the covenant sign of circumcision all the way back in the days of Abraham, promising to be a God to them, they would be his people, and that all the, all the blessing that would come to them as his covenant people would be as a gift of his free grace. We see that even here. Why do the men have to be circumcised? We're told in verse 5 that the reason they had not been circumcised is that the generation before them, the wilderness generation, uh, the, the generation that had seen the Exodus miracles with their own eyes, but through their disobedience and wandering in the wilderness, had not remained faithful to the covenant and so had not circumcised their children. And because that generation, that older generation, died in the wilderness without ever seeing the promised land because of their unfaithfulness, the younger generation grew up never being circumcised and bearing the covenant sign of being God's favored and chosen people. The younger generation grew up that way, but even in that we see the grace of God because instead of just cutting off the people completely for their their, um, technically being outside the covenant because they don't bear the sign, uh, God mercifully reminded them here that they are his people and to demonstrate that through the covenant sign. And when they had obeyed, the Lord said to them in verse 9, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. What does he mean by that? Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. I believe he means that in Egypt they were slaves, but now on this day they were God's people bearing God's covenant sign in God's place technically, in the promised land. What does this mean for us? Well, circumcision was a, was a covenant sign that pointed to two realities. Okay? Here's how maybe you think about, you should think about circumcision in the Old Testament. It was a, it was a covenant sign that pointed to two different realities. One, it, 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 uh, the fact that, I mean, I don't want to get too crude, but the fact that it was a, a, a sign that was placed on the male reproductive organ was a, was a sign, it was a pointer to an offspring coming. Like, to an offspring coming. And the fact that it was a bloody sign pointed, was a pointer to, the, to something bloody about that coming offspring, pointing to the cross of Christ. I don't make that up. That, the, the New Testament says that repeatedly about what circumcision represented. The second thing, it, so it pointed, circumcision pointed to A, the coming of Christ, and B, the, the cross of of the coming Christ. But the second thing it pointed to was uh, physical circumcision pointed to a, a deeper reality, even in the Old Testament, called circumcision of the heart. Circumcision of the heart, which, by which was meant a new heart, 
uh, as Jesus would say to Nicodemus, born again, changed, regenerated. That's circumcision of the heart. Um, it's, that's true in the Old Testament, which is why Jesus marveled in, in John 3 with Nicodemus that he didn't understand it. You're a teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things? But it was there. Circumcision was to be an outward picture of that inward reality. Well, for us, knowing that circumcision pointed forward to Christ and pointed forward to a new heart or a deeper reality of a new heart, we have the benefit of his death on our behalf, and we have, as a gift of his spirit, a new heart by which we trust in him and put our faith in his, in his work for our salvation. We, we, have, we experience those things, and we look back on them. And the, and the outward sign to us of those things, the Lord has given us baptism, right? And if you want to just hold your place here in Joshua 5, and turn to the New Testament to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. You can just hold your place here in Joshua 5. We'll come back. Colossians chapter 2. And when you get there, we're just going to read two verses that I hope illustrate what I've just said. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. In him, that is in Christ, in him you were circumcised. He's talking to pagan Gentile Christians, right? Uh, well, formerly pagan, now Christian. In him, in Christ, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you all were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And right there we see circumcision used in both of those two ways that I just outlined. First, it's referring to a new heart. Uh, 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 born again and regenerate. That's why the circumcision, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. It's not talking about a physical circumcision. It's made without hands. It's something only the Spirit of God can do to a human heart, which is why it's described as putting off the body of flesh. But then it talks about also, it refers to the, the sacrifice of Christ for our sins when it talks about the circumcision of Christ. That's not talking about his circumcision when he was an eight-day-old baby. He's talking about the cross, right? And so now, what is the outward sign? According to Colossians 2, 11, and 12, what is the outward sign for us that we have received both of these good gifts, the benefit of his cross and the, and the, the regenerating effect of his Holy Spirit on our hearts? What's the, what's the outward sign given to us? Baptism. Buried with him in baptism. Right? And so for us, just as it would have been for them in Joshua 5, being reminded of the covenant sign that you bear uh, is a reminder that you are a covenant child of God and that you can expect nothing but good things and blessing from his hand. Circumcision was a forward-looking reminder of those things, and baptism is a backward-looking sign of those two things.
But each was an outward sign given to us when we often forget that we are his people. We are his recipients of his promises, that he will never stop doing good to us, that he will fulfill for us and in us all of his saving promises. You can go back to Joshua 5. As they entered into the land, it was good for them to be reminded at the outset that they are his people. They are his, they are his covenant people. And as we walk in Christ, as we, walk in, as we go out these doors and walk in Christ and walk by faith, it's good for us to remember often our baptism. We don't often think about it. But we often think about baptism as what we are saying to everybody watching. And that's true. Baptism is a testimony to people watching. I am trusting the Lord. This is something that I'm saying in this dramatic way. This is, this is a, a, a testimony that I am bearing by immersion and being raised. This is something that I'm saying. But sometimes we think that's all that baptism is. Baptism is not just what we are saying. Baptism also pictures something that God is saying to us. He is saying, I have buried your old life. I have raised you to a new life. I have washed your sins away. You are mine. That's what God is saying to us. And just for us, just as for them, as they walk in, in, to, in to do battle in the, in the promised land, as we walk out these doors and do battle against the principalities and darkness of this evil world, it is good to remember our own baptism, remember the, the sign that God has placed upon us that we are his favored people, and he never leaves us nor forsakes us. That's the first thing that they could have trust. They are his people. But as we keep moving ahead in the chapter, they also observed the Passover for the first time in the promised land. And in that, God reminded them in an even greater way that they could trust his promise. And really here, I just want to focus, like I said, on one verse, and that's verse 10. Verse 10, all it says is, while the people, were in his, people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month on the plains of Jericho. Well, Exodus 12, 6 says they, they did it on the right day. 14th day of the month, right? They did it on the correct day. But the larger picture here is that this, this would not only have been obedience to the law, which it was, but it was a further reminder to them of their peace with God and his promise to forgive their sins, pictured in the Passover sacrifice. And the fact that they observed this Passover feast on the plains of Jericho is, 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 isn't to be overlooked either simply for the obvious fact that yet again they were observing this feast in the land in the land the land itself is a, a type of the of, of the promise that the passover sacrifice also typified um what does that mean remember that an old testament type is a small picture in some way of a greater reality coming in the New Testament, namely in Christ. And the Old Testament promised land was, and we've already pointed this out in, in some way along the way, the Old Testament promised land was never intended to be an end in itself. It was never to be the goal, the final goal. A, even Abraham knew that, right? Hebrews 11.10 
Hebrews 11.10 tells us that he, Abraham, who received the promise of this promised land, even he, Hebrews 11.10, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. So even Abraham knew that this promised land, this physical promised land, is just a down payment on heaven coming. And what does the Passover sacrifice typify? Well, 1 Corinthians 5-7 tells us plainly that what that is. In 1 Corinthians 5-7, Paul says there that Christ, our Passover sacrifice, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Sacrifice to take away the sins of everyone who believes, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might what? Bring us to God, Peter says, 1 Peter 3.18. And that's where the two typologies meet. Right? Christ, our Passover lamb, who did once for all what those priests who came before, even the ones in Joshua 5, couldn't do, namely, fully and finally take away sins. Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, did that. And we enjoy, and, wh and why did he do it? He took our sin on himself to bring us to God, to bring us to that city that Abraham was looking forward to. We enjoy a better view of what a view than Joshua did, but they still saw it. Even on the brink of their conquest of the land, it was encouraging for, for them to know that not only were they his people, but they could trust his promise that they had peace with him and that this land was just a prelude to a better land coming. And so can we. When we take the Lord's Supper, looking back on the sacrifice of Christ, the one that the Passover looked forward to, Right? We look back on it, it looked forward to it. We remember that we are um, not only resting in his promise, but we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Right? And takes us to himself that where he is there we may be also. So that's where it all meets, right? Not only that we are forgiven now, but we have a hope of a homecoming. So God reminded them that they could trust that they were his people, they could trust his promise. But as we come to the end of the chapter, and the most intriguing bit of it, Joshua is reminded in a, in a vivid way that they can trust his provision for them. Actually, before we get into that in, intriguing encounter at the end of the chapter, we need to point out a very important detail in this chapter that doesn't need to get overlooked. And it goes right hand in hand under this umbrella of trusting his provision. That, that's the manna, manna ceasing. Um, we're told in verses 11 and 12, that the day after they celebrated the Passover, um, the manna that had fed them daily for 40 years stopped. Why? Because God, what did, it, did it stop because God finally got fed up, that he finally quit providing for them? No. And, uh, the manna stopped because he provided for them an even better way. An even better way... Uh, to, to be fed and nourished, and that is with the produce and the fruit of the land itself. God fed them himself until he brought them to a place with their food in abundance. God is such a good provider. Even in the ceasing of manna is a testimony to his good and faithful and ceaseless provision for our every need. And that's a good reminder whenever we don't get what we think we need. Did we really need it? But the Lord, at the end of this chapter, doesn't just assure them that he will provide for them in the sense of food. 
but also in ways relevant to what they were about to do, which is to go and take the land. They were about to go to battle. Almost out of nowhere, at the end of this chapter, Joshua is sort of pictured, at least when I read this, I, I imagine Joshua seems to be alone when this happens. Why was he alone? I kind of picture him like away from the people. Maybe he was out praying. Maybe he was out scouting, right? Because after all, they, they are on the plains of Jericho. Jericho is right there that they're about to do battle against. He's out there, he's alone, he's walking, perhaps he's praying, perhaps he's scouting. And all it says in verse 3, that, verse 13, is that Joshua lifted up his eyes and looked, and a man with a drawn sword was standing right in front of him. Maybe he said, holy Moses. A very natural question then came from Joshua. He said, are you for us or for them? <laughs> Are you on our side or on your, are you on their side? And the man's first answer is simply, no. Neither. Ha ha. I love Ralph Davis's comment on this verse. He said, sometimes we need to see that Yahweh is not so much partisan as sovereign that it is more important to recognize God's position than to know God's plans. Just let that one sink in for a little while. But who is this man? For us, for them, no. He identifies himself in verse 14 as the commander of the army of the Lord. What is that? Well, certainly it's, it, it includes the men of Israel who are about to go do battle. And they're on the plains of Jericho, about to fight the city that they can see with their own eyes. They just circumcised the whole army. Are you commander of this army? Yes. Is that all it includes, though? No. You read the Old Testament carefully. This idea comes up again and again. 1 Kings, 1 Kings 22, 19. 1 Kings 22, 19 indicates that the army of the Lord includes, quote, all the host of heaven. Think of also that I love the great scene in 2 Kings 6 when uh, Elisha prayed during a battle. And it says, 2 Kings 6, The Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and beheld the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There's more of us with us than with them. That's all the host of heaven. This is the commander of that army. Men and angels. And that gets us closer to who this man might be. Joshua falls to the ground, prostrate, and worships him. And he's not rebuked for it. I mean, you think about, there are times, Old Testament and New, where a man falls down. Angels are scary. And people see an angel and they fall down and worship. And the angels almost always say, get up. I'm just an angel, right? Only God is to be worshipped. This person does not rebuke Joshua for laying prostrate and worshipping. Joshua says, what should I do? Also appropriate. And he's told in verse 15, 
take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. What does that remind you of? The burning bush in Exodus 3. This is an example of what we might call an Old Testament theophany. Theophany, fancy word. Simply means two, two words in Greek combined. Theos, God, phinos, appearing. Theophany, an appearing of God uh, in, in some physical form. There are many different kinds of theophanies in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's through a thunderstorm. Right? Sometimes it's, I mean, it's, I won't have time to go through all of it. But, but more, than, more than one time, it's through the appearance of a man. He did it with Abraham. Remember, there were three men who came to Abraham. Two of them were angels. And they eventually left, and the one kept walking with Abraham. That was the Lord. And, and, and what, what, what do you make of all these, these, these Old Testament appearances? Apparently of God... In, in, in a physical form of a man, but Jesus has not yet come. I told you, we talk about circumcision being a type and uh, the Passover being a type of something greater coming. So are these theophanies. They are, they are type in this way. They are just temporary theophanies of a more permanent theophany coming. Jesus is a permanent theophany. Right, And Vern Poitras, a biblical scholar at Westminster Seminary, said this about this appearance in Joshua 5. He says, We may therefore infer that the human form in an Old Testament appearance points forward to the permanent appearance of God in the human nature of Christ. So God the Son appears in the Old Testament. At the same time, when the Son appears, the Father also appears in the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. All three persons are present because all three persons indwell one another. The appearances in the Old Testament remain mysterious, however, because the incarnation has not yet taken place. Needless to say, Joshua would have been encouraged to know that God himself had manifested himself to him with a drawn sword, assuring him that he would fight the battles for the people and fulfill his promise to them. To which I say, should we be any less encouraged? We don't have the physical appearance of the Lord standing right in front of us with a sword drawn to go out on a Tuesday. No, we don't. But according to Jesus, we have something better than that. We have something better than that. According to Jesus, it's better that he went away that the physical Jesus went away, he'll return again, but he went away so that the helper, the Holy Spirit, could come to us. Should we not have as much confidence in the Lord to do in and through and by us in our days as we walk in obedience as Joshua was on that day when he saw the Lord to face his battle? Indeed, we have something better than Joshua had on that day. So we can trust we are his people. All his promises are yes in Christ. He's provided everything that we need for life and godliness. I just think Joshua 5 is just a beautiful forecast of what we have already received in Christ. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you so much for this word.
And I pray that as we have just a few minutes around our tables, uh, that you might help us think about uh, this passage a little more deeply, even if in just a few minutes. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.